Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 2 of Greatest Stories Under Told, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. This second installment is entitled, Jehoash Fails a Test. All Scripture is taken from the NIV. So come with me now to 2 Kings chapter 13, a story that is only five verses long, verses 14 through 18. We are in the northern kingdom after the nation of Israel split into two. There was Judah in the south and the northern kingdom of Israel in the north. The king on the throne of this part of the nation is not a descendant of David, and the capital here is Samaria. This king's name is Jehoash, but sometimes the scripture calls him Joash, not to be confused with the king of the same name that was a descendant of David and lived in Judah. This king reigned for 16 years from about 798 to 782 BC, and his reign was characterized as evil because he tolerated the worship of golden calves. However, externally, he worshiped the Lord and he was respectful of and interested in the prophet of the day, Elisha. You may recall that Elisha the prophet was a disciple and successor of the famous prophet Elijah. Elisha prophesied during the reign of four Israeli kings because he was the nation's prophet for about 60 years, which means he was probably in his mid to late 80s at the time of this story which was towards the end of his life. 2 Kings 13, 14 through 18. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Okay, so Elisha the prophet has apparently greatly declined because of whatever illness this is. And because Joash really likes him and respects him and sees him as a father figure, he decides to go and visit. And when he opens the door and sees him, maybe he sees a man who is very pale or very thin or otherwise appears unhealthy and unwell, and it grieves his heart. So he calls him my father, but he also calls him a very curious title, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Who would call someone a chariot and a horseman? It's interesting because this title was the same one that Elisha used with his mentor Elijah before Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And it seems to refer to the strength of Israel which is in its army, typically. The strength of Israel comes through the God of Israel and through the power of the Spirit of God that rests on the prophet. So what Jehoash was basically saying was, I respect you as the man on whom God's Spirit dwells because I recognize this is our source of strength. So we go on. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. 
So he took a bow and arrows. What a strange request. He doesn't say, thank you for coming. He doesn't say hello. He doesn't say, I'm not feeling well. He just gets right to the point and tells him to pick up a weapon. So the king plays along, knowing that this is probably going to be important, and he picks up a bow. And he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. So I don't know if Elisha was unable to sit up and the king sort of leaned over him on his deathbed or whether he did sit up and the king came over close or whether maybe ill Elisha was even able to walk around a bit. Whatever it was, after the king, who doesn't know what's going on yet, picks up this bow and puts an arrow in it and draws it back a little bit and is holding it taut, the prophet manages to put his arms around the king so that he can put his hands on the bow as well. So whatever it is, it's obviously going to be symbolic. And he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Now, I imagine that there were probably some bodyguards there and servants with the king. And perhaps the king simply nodded to one of these guys. And there were shutters or something that closed the window. And so those were removed. And now the east window is open and you could actually shoot an arrow through it. Well, what lies to the east of the northern kingdom of Israel is the enemy nation, Syria. So we go on. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. All right, so the king has drawn this bow back, and he shoots the arrow out the window towards the east. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. All right, so the shooting of this arrow results in a prophecy where the king says, You see, this represented your making the effort to fight against your enemy Syria, and God in his strength and power is going to give you victory. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. All right, so now the king and Elisha are on the same page with the symbolism because Elisha is starting to open up a little bit. So the king goes and Maybe he picks up a handful of arrows out of the quiver that was lying on the floor. Or maybe a servant hands him some. Or maybe a bodyguard hands him some. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. So I picture the king kneeling down, and probably the floor was stone, and taking a handful of these arrows to begin striking the floor, and he doesn't know why, but he knows that it has something to do with victory over an enemy, and they had just discussed the enemy Syria. And he struck three times and stopped. Okay, so the king is playing along, but not very wholeheartedly. He just strikes the ground three times. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then 
you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Well, that's the whole story. That's everything that I wanted to cover before we started looking at the symbolism. Why, when he hadn't told them exactly how many times to strike, would Elisha have been upset with this king for striking three times instead of five or six? And why would the king have only struck three times when he knew full well that this symbolized a confrontation with the evil enemy Syria. Let's go on and look at some other verses that can shed a little light on this. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, David writes a prophecy about his descendant to come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we see here in this passage that God the Father is going to give victory over the whole world to His Son, Jesus Christ, the descendant of David. All Jesus had to do was ask. Ask of me, it says. And so that required having vision. That required actually having the will to make it come to pass, to put himself in position as a man and lay down his life for our sins. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we see that as heirs of Christ, we're in this same position where we can ask of the Lord and he will give us a marvelous victory. This is what could have been the fate for the northern kingdom of Israel in the time of Jehoash. But he didn't dream big enough He didn't have the vision and the wherewithal within, the motivation to actually be a part of this marvelous victory. So why didn't he think big enough? And why don't we think big enough in the spiritual battles that we face? Well, there are probably three reasons, and they are fear, doubt, and apathy. Let's start with that first one, fear. Perhaps Jehoash didn't think big enough because partially he was afraid. He was afraid of asking too much of the poor sick prophet or afraid of appearing foolish, down on the ground, pounding on the floor. Maybe his servants or maybe the prophet would have thought, okay, give it a rest, that's enough. Don't make too big of a deal out of it. Or maybe he was afraid of asking and thinking so big that maybe God would be angry with him. We move on to Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. 
Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. He's getting ready to ask him for something really big, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And then you probably remember the rest of the story. Jesus did go with him, and he did raise that young girl back to life. Jesus' command to Jairus was, Don't be afraid. In other words, feel free to think big. Have the vision of something that marvelous, that grand, that the power of God could enter a dead body and enliven it again. Praise the Lord. Don't fear, only believe. The second of the three reasons why we don't think big sometimes is doubt. Paul wrote to the Romans, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Mark 9, 21 through 23 is a continuation of the story where a man who had a demon-possessed son had brought the son to the disciples and asked them to cast it out, and they couldn't. So Jesus comes along, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So he was telling this man, no doubting. You can ask for great things because you can't ask God for something so big that he is simply not able to do it. Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Did you catch that? Able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. That's what he wants us to do. God would have had Jehoash down there on the ground pounding that ground with those arrows time after time after time, showing that he believed God and that he wasn't afraid and that he could envision the Lord bringing about this marvelous victory that was being symbolized. Instead, he just half did it. But the third of the three reasons, then, why we don't think big, besides fear and doubt, is apathy. Paul said in Romans 12:11, Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You know, laziness was one of the sins that the medieval church said was one of the seven deadly ones. They thought that it was even worse than sins like gluttony and lust because it pretty well shut down the work of God in a person's life. When Jesus was addressing the seven churches in the book of Revelation, 
he came to the church of Laodicea and he said, So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, your apathy is going to cause you to be rejected. And so, when we think about what it would take to really dream big, I'm reminded of an organization called the Gideons International, founded in 1899 in Wisconsin by a couple of traveling businessmen that had been placed in a room together because the place was so very crowded. They discovered that they were both Christians and decided to have their nightly devotions together. And there they began to dream about an organization of businessmen that would place scriptures in the traffic lanes of life. And from there, the Gideons International was born. Now it's in about 200 countries, territories, and possessions. And it's printed, the scriptures are, in over 100 languages. And they are distributed to the tune of about 80 million per year. In fact, in April of 2015, they reached the 2 billion mark, which is hard to even fathom that the Word of God could go out that way in an organization that vast when just 121 years before we have two businessmen praying together in a hotel room. So, What is the take-home message of this passage of Scripture in 2 Kings 13, then? Is it simply that an evil king didn't try very hard? No, it's dream big and pray fervently, ditch fear and doubt, and let God do what He would like to do in your life. Let's pray like it says in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As much as it lies within me for your will to be done on earth, O Lord, let me be a channel of your grace and do whatever you would like to do to honor and glorify your name. If this podcast has been a help to you, please pass it along. 